Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me once again this week for another episode of Living History. I'm really enjoying bringing these chapters of history to you. And thank you so much to everyone who's responding so strongly. In recent months, we've seen thousands and thousands of new listeners coming and joining us on the podcast. So welcome to all those new listeners. And indeed, thank you to all the listeners who've been with us for the last couple of years. Thank you also for sending in your feedback. I always love receiving it through Twitter or through Facebook are the two main channels where you can reach me. So please feel free to say hello, give me feedback about the episodes, give me suggestions for new podcasts. Some of our greatest episodes have been through suggestions that have come from from you out there. So please keep sending that feedback into me and please keep reviewing the podcast. If you could go particularly on Apple Podcasts, if you're an Apple user, give us a five-star rating if you'd be so kind and write a few words as a review because that does help new people find the podcast, which is always good for us bringing new content to new people. A couple of housekeeping things before we kick off this week. Uh, check out the new podcast if you haven't. We've launched a new podcast series here on Living History called Treasures from the Vault, where I visit museums and libraries and archives and tell the story of history through those wonderful items that are hidden in those vaults of those great institutions. So check out Treasures from the Vault wherever you find good podcasts. Also, Peter Hart, the irrepressible Peter Hart, is doing a book for us, The Gallipoli Evacuation. That book is going to be printed in September. You'll have copies in your hand in September, but you can pre-order it from June on our website, which is livinghistorytv.com. So don't forget to go to that website and pre-order that book from June. It's going to be something really special, and you'll get that special behind-the-scenes interview with Peter Hart as an exclusive gift for people who pre-order the book. Now, to today's episode, one that's really important, it's the anniversary of D-Day, and so we're going to be speaking to Paul Reid all about the British contribution on D-Day, something that gets a little bit overlooked. And it would be remiss of me not to mention that Paul Reid has an absolutely outstanding podcast himself. If you are someone who enjoys visiting the battlefields, you've got to check out Paul Reid's podcast. It's called The Old Front Line, and in it he takes you on wonderful walks through the battlefields of the Western Front and Gallipoli and the First World War battlefields. It's really wonderful. I'm absolutely loving it. And my long walks during lockdown, uh, it's what's keeping me going, uh, listening to Paul Reid talking all about visiting the battlefields. It's making me jealous to get back over there and walk the battlefields again, and I can't wait until we're allowed to travel and I'll get back to the battlefields. But in the meantime, if you're like me and you're missing being on the battlefields, check out Paul Reid's The Old Front Line. That podcast will really take you over there and give you an impression of what it's like to walk the battlefields. But we're not talking First World War today, we're talking the Second World War, we're talking D-Day. Let's hear from Paul Reid all about the British contribution on D-Day. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. 
Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and this week marks the anniversary of the D-Day landings, one of the most famous chapters of the Second World War, probably one of the most famous chapters of warfare in general. So what a great time to get someone on who knows about this in great detail. It's Paul Reed, and Paul's been on the uh, on the podcast before and it's always just really great catching up with him. So Paul, thanks for taking the time via Zoom to come on the show and uh, talk to us about D-Day. Thanks for inviting me back, mate. It's always good to be here. It's D-Day is one of those funny ones, mate. I, I, you know, we, we talk about it so much, and it, it's one of those topics that I think everyone feels that they know about, um, but there's always something more to learn about it. It was just such a huge venture, just such a, such a great undertaking, um, that there's always more to learn. And so you made the suggestion that today, perhaps rather than focusing on the things we might have all seen in Hollywood movies and the Saving Private Ryan adventure, let's talk about the British contribution, the British landings on D-Day, because it was a very significant part of the story and one that we probably overlook. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, if you if you watch Saving Private Ryan, it, it is one of the defining movies of the Second World War of, of recent times. It really underplays uh, and downplays, really, the contribution of the of the British and Commonwealth forces um, on the D-Day operations. There's a conversation between the Tom Hanks character and his commanding officer about the British landings on uh, on Sword Beach and Montgomery being an underrated general. And I think I think that plays into a more recent narrative amongst some American Second World War historians that the British sort of treated war as a game, and that all we were doing was brewing up and having tea on the beach, and and not pushing on towards Khan, and that the real murder on D-Day, the casualties on D-Day, was at Omaha. But really, every beach was a difficult landing, and there were tremendous casualties on all of the Normandy beaches on the sixth of June, nineteen forty-four. Well, let's start so that we all are on the same page. Give us the quick overview of, of where the landings took place and the contribution made by the British versus the Americans. Well, the landings had two purposes from the British point of view. The British and Commonwealth beaches, Swords, Juno and Gold, uh, they were to push inland and capture the ground between Bayer and Caen to open up the route beyond Normandy and, and assist the breakout. Push on to Paris, you get Paris, you've got France... From France, you've got Belgium. From Belgium, you've got the Netherlands. And the Netherlands give you a route into Nazi Germany and the defeat of the Third Reich. And obviously, the Americans are going to play their part in that. But initially for them, landing in uh, the sector between Omaha and Utah, the task was to capture the Cherbourg Peninsula and go for Cherbourg, capture a deep water port. So they could resupply their troops directly from the United States and not have to come through Britain uh, and reinforce by sending stuff right down the length of Britain and then across the channel from Portsmouth and uh, and Southampton, um, and then once they'd done that, was to build up their their forces and uh, and then assist in the Allied breakout from Normandy because we can't see these these Allied partners in isolation. It was coalition warfare, um, and we're not banging a particular drum today. I think you know we've got to emphasise the fact that victory was only possible through this coalition, but we've got to see it in balance. You know, up for the for the first month of the D Day opera for the Normandy operations. Uh, most men on the ground were from Britain and the Commonwealth, not Americans. It took that time to build up American troops. So the task was to move inland, get yourself a bridgehead, capture these key areas, and then begin, initiate the uh, the phases to achieve breakout from that area and push towards Paris and the liberation of France. It sounds from that description, Paul, that the British had the uh, the tougher job on their hands uh, on D-Day and in the uh, the weeks afterwards. Well, of course, it was the area that uh, that they were going to land in was the area that most likely any German reinforcements would come into first. 
um, in many respects, that area between Khan and Bayer would shield the approach of some German forces from the American uh, bridgehead area. And the bulk of, if you look at where German units were on the eve of D-Day, many of them were up in northern France, 12th uh, SS Hitler Jungen Division, one of the most famous units that served in the Normandy campaign from a German perspective and ended up fighting against uh, the Canadians around Caen and then British units as well. Um, you know, that was right up on the near Lille, for example. Um, so these units, if they were going to approach Normandy, they were going to approach it from the area where the British would come in. Come in. So it, it turned that area of the battlefield, you know, into what some people have described as Monty's meat grinder, where unit after unit was thrown in to contain these German forces and fight this attritional battle that was, in many respects, a bit of a, an overture back to the, the First World War, the Great War, um, but grind down the enemy. Um, with the uh, the intention of achieving ultimate breakthrough once the Americans were prepared to assist you on your flanks. And, you know, in a big, broad brush sweep, that is essentially what happened later on in the campaign. But on D-Day, it was about establishing that bridge and looking at places to land. That was the key to it, really. Well, tell us about those D-Day landings, because there were three beaches that the British and Canadians landed on, as opposed to the two beaches the Americans landed on. So tell us about the, the British and Canadian landings. Well, looking at it from the sea, and when we you know, we talk about D-Day, we have to look at it from the sea, really, because that's obviously the approach the troops came in. And when we talk about left and right, we're not standing on the beach as we do today looking out to sea. We're looking at it from the approach of the troops coming in on uh, an HR on, uh, on D-Day. And from left to right, um, from east to west, essentially, you've got Sword Beach, which was a British beach. Third Infantry Division landed there, uh, supported by the 1st Special Service Brigade. It included 177 French commandos under Commandant Kiefer. And it's quite interesting today when you visit Normandy, you now see that that beach is often shown with a French flag rather than a British one. Uh, you know, there was something, I don't know, 100 and something thousand British troops landed there by the end of D-Day. Um, then 177 French commandos you know, played a role, but not as significant a role to give it that sort of place marker, I think, on on the uh, the table mats in uh, in French cafes across the we, Normandy we can always we can always trust the French to uh, to to find their uh, their French angle and uh, yeah, <laughs> good sure, on them it was sure. their, their homeland so <laughs> exactly exactly yeah but but uh, so that's one of the main British beaches in the middle you have the Canadians at Juneau um, and on the right with more British troops um, at, at Gold Beach and and if you look at the the difference between these troops on Sword Beach this was a, a unit the Third Infantry Division that had been in the Battle of France 80 years ago. They were taking part in the retreat to, to Dunkirk, uh, commanded by General Montgomery, uh, Monty's Ironsides, they were called. Uh, they came back uh, to Britain in 1940 um, and then spent the next four years in the UK. They didn't go overseas again. They didn't go off to North Africa or Italy or anything like that. Um, so they trained incessantly, and certainly in the approach to D-Day, in the approach to the Normandy operations, they trained uh, continuously in amphibious warfare. Them alongside the, the US 29th Division were probably the best trained amphibious warfare units in the Allied forces, in 21st Army Group and the whole Allied forces that would go into Normandy. Um, so they were, in many respects, made up um, of some original pre-war regulars, but the bulk of the men by 1944 were wartime conscripts who had not seen action. The Canadians were volunteers. Canada had conscription, but to serve overseas, you had to volunteer. So the men who landed on Juno Beach were all volunteers, which 
you know get, makes them slightly stand out in a different way to some of the other units that uh, that were there. And on Gold Beach, these were men from the 50th Northumbrian Division um, who were battle-hardened veterans who had fought in the 1940 campaign, then gone off into the Western Desert, had taken part in the landings in Italy, and then had fought through to the Sangro Battle when Monty had been promoted from commander of 8th Army off to 21st Army Group and had taken some of his veteran divisions back with him, including including that one. So it was a mix of different forces, um, but in each case, when you look at the actual terrain that they're uh, going to land on, compared to you know the much discussed Omaha Beach, they're they're very very different um, because the, the point of these landings was to get ashore. It wasn't just to contain yourself on the beach. You wanted to get ashore, so you needed to have a good road system beyond that beach, and you needed to have a good road system beyond that area to get you inland to the big cities onto the big roads and push on to the capital city, to, to Paris. And you needed to have beaches that were also capable of supporting the sort of landing that you were going to send in because we weren't just sending a few landing craft with troops in. By 1944, it's much more sophisticated than that. How did the British go during the landings? We've all seen Saving Private Ryan and the poor old Americans getting carved up on Omaha Beach. Was that the experience for the British and the Canadians on their beaches? Well, I think that if you look at uh, the British experience of the Second World War, I often call it a boffin's war. You know, it was about using our technical capabilities and our technical know-how to try and achieve victory because 1944 for us was the fifth year of the war and the British Army had been in action pretty much continuously during that period. And there was a manpower issue in the British Army. We couldn't just throw thousands of men at the Atlantic Wall and take those casualties um, in the way that the Americans could do. The Americans had been fighting, of course, in the Pacific, uh, but it had only really affected the US Army at that stage in, in a fairly small way compared to the experience of British and Commonwealth forces. And I think that if you look at the attitude of American commanders, that they feel they can throw thousands of men at the Atlantic Wall. If there's thousands of casualties, then there are thousands more back in Pennsylvania or wherever waiting to be brought forward uh, and shipped off to to fight in the the ETO, the European Theatre of Operations. So the British use science and they use technology um, and they really think about the whole plan for D-Day. And if you look at the um, the assault diagrams, if you like, for the British beaches, they're incredibly complex documents uh, that show this whole approach to... Um, different types of kit being sent in at different points so that you can more effectively break through the uh, the Atlantic Wall. What were their casualties like when they hit those beaches? Well, I mean, in the initial landings at H hour, um, at Sword Beach, that was at 7.25. Um, each beach was a different time depending on, on where the where the tide was. Um, on Sword Beach, which is, which is a good example of, of one of the British beaches and the problems that they, that they faced... Everything went to plan in many respects there. So the first wave involved engineers backed up by tanks. So the engineers were uh, assault engineers from the 77th Assault Regiment. They were in Churchill AVREs, Armoured Vehicle Royal Engineers. Uh, these were not anti-tank tanks, as we know. They were set there to with petard mortars to take out structures, seawalls, bunkers, static defences, and so on. Um, they landed right on time, supported by Sherman Duplex Drive DD tanks from the 13th, 18th Hussars. They were there to give fire support. And then coming behind them 
was the infantry. So it wasn't a case of sending the infantry in first and then sending in the backup. You have the backup there at the immediate point the infantry arrive. So you think, right, okay, that's fine. That's all happened on, on time. That's all happened. The tanks and the vehicles are in the places they should be. The British had looked at Sword Beach. You know, when we go there today and we walk out to the point where the main landings were and we look to our right um, down towards Khan, um, towards um, Worcester, rather, uh, where, the, where the port is, and then we look to our left and we can see the coastline carrying on. That's a big, long, wide beach. Now, we did not land on every part of that. We used a bit of a, a Great War approach of bite and hold to use resources to punch a hole through the Atlantic Wall, push into the hinterland beyond, get around the back of it, and then gradually sweep it up. That was the plan. So initially, it looked as if everything was fine, and there'd been a huge pre-D-Day bombardment from the air, and in the final run-up uh, from the, the Royal Navy, from the uh, the naval side of uh, of Operation Overlord. And there was even on Sword Beach, as there was on uh, a couple of uh, British beaches that day, a run-in shoot where you have landing craft tanks with either priests or sextons on board, self-propelled guns, and they drop some artillery onto the beach in the final run-up to uh, to when they land. Now, despite all of that stuff being thrown onto the German defenders, uh, who were from the um, uh, 736 Grenadier uh, Regiment, despite all that, pretty much 100% of the German defences had survived, and there were very, very few casualties amongst that Grenadier Regiment. So that meant that when the tanks hit that beach, and when the infantry hit that beach behind them, in this case from the 2nd Battalion East Yorkshire Regiment, 1st Battalion South Lanx, all hell let loose in exactly the same way that all hell let loose when the Americans landed on Omaha Beach. The Germans there have the advantage of the high bluffs at Omaha, which, you know, many of those of those of us who've been to Omaha will have seen the advantage of terrain there. But that's not a it's a factor, but it's not the, the most important factor. If you've got a group of men in static defences with operational weapons and know that they can't go back and they can't go forward they're going to throw everything they've got at you to try and wipe you out. And that was the key to the Atlantic Wall, was not to let the Allies land, it was to kill them on the beach. Um, so all hell lets loose on Sword Beach, and the two assault battalions, the East Yorks and the South Lanx, begin to take tremendous casualties as they're trying to get up the beach. In the first South Lanx, their commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Burberry, strolled onto the beach uh, with a, a coloured uh, neckerchief poking out of his battle dress, wearing a peak cap and holding a, a staff, a bit like some of the officers we read about in the Great War. Um, and he went down with a sniper shot pretty quickly. I mean, the guy wasn't foolhardy, I suppose, in, from his point of view. He's the commanding officer. He was determined to be seen by his men, so it helped inspire them to get to where they want to be. But, of course, uh, in the melee of battle, it also presented him as a... Uh, a pretty big target, and, and he's the first to go down. So what you see is command pretty quickly passes from a lieutenant colonel, then to a major, second in command, then to a company commander, a captain, and very quickly you're getting down to subalterns, lieutenants, and second lieutenants. Uh, the whole officer structure of the battalion is pretty much wiped out as they're trying to get through the German defences because the bombardment hadn't destroyed them. So there's wire to cut, there's minefields to clear, there's bunkers to take out, and the whole structure of what they're meant to do, the whole timetable of what they're meant to do, breaks down. And when we look at the actual figures, 
um, you're looking at uh, about 50-odd uh, men killed um, in both battalions there, hundreds of wounded. I mean, one of the things about the Second World War compared to the first is that far more men, of course, do survive uh, because of medical facilities. Even on a chaotic beach like that, landing craft could take wounded away. And many men died of their wounds. When you go to some of the cemeteries in the UK, there are guys buried in them that were brought back by landing craft and died on the cross-channel crossing back to the UK or died in hospitals in the UK. Um, so the actual number of fatal casualties was, was eventually much higher than that as a consequence of the landings. But it meant that these b- battalions pretty quickly became combat ineffective and it meant that when the 1st Special Service Brigade coming up behind them landed expecting the beach to be captured, uh, Lovett looked out across the landing craft and thought, this doesn't look pretty, this doesn't look very captured to me. And as soon as his men hit the beach, they were part of the battle as well uh, and helped turn the tide there um, to achieve the breakout off the beach. What about on the other beaches on Gold and uh, Juno? How did they fare against the Germans as they came ashore? Well, it wasn't it wasn't a dissimilar story on on the Canadian sector. There were three separate landings there in different locations, again to maximise your effort to try and break through portions of the Atlantic Wall and then sweep it up. Things there went a bit awry with the timetable of the arrival of kit um, on one particular sector. Um, one of the units that landed there landed without tank or Churchill AVRE support, uh, and what you see is a similar story that the the pre D-Day bombardment, either from the air or from, from naval bombardments, had not done its job. In most cases, 95 to 100% of the defences were intact. So it meant that every single unit on Juno had to fight their way through that and suffered tremendous casualties as a consequence. Um, on gold, um, it wasn't dissimilar. The Yorkshire Regiment landing on the right flank um they did uh, a little bit better, but as Nell, where the Hampshires came ashore, there was an 88 bunker there that looked straight down the beach uh, and another bunker at the far end of the beach that looked straight back in the opposite direction. There was a whole nest of machine gun and mortar positions there and they walked into an absolute wall of fire there that wiped them out. They had the highest casualty rates. I think 10% of the overall British casualties in the assault units on D-Day, was suffered by the Hampshire Regiment uh, on that part of Gold Beach. It became the bloodiest British beach, really, of the whole D-Day operations. So what you see, it's not dissimilar to anything that is depicted in Saving Private Ryan. Men come off landing crafts, get hit by machine gun fire, uh, explosions, mortars going off. Um, Then there are heavy casualties in the whole structure of the battle, what they're trying to do, breaks down. And just as on Omaha, which are... You know, I often describe it as a battle of a thousand battles, really, where there are small little engagements going on where men try to join all that up to try and achieve victory. It's not dissimilar on the British beaches either. Uh, I suppose the difference is that for a long time we've believed that the casualties on Omaha were much, much higher, uh, and we're beginning to believe otherwise, I think, now. Paul, given the nature of that story, that's a, it's an amazing epic of, of glory and, and pain. Why does the US landing on D-Day get so much more attention than the British? Is it simply because Hollywood's got a big budget and wants to tell the American story, or is there something else going on there? I think there is an element of that. I mean, you know, American films are generally, uh, American-backed films are generally going to tell the American view, although, we've, you know, we've seen differently with recent films like 1917, uh, for example, 
for the First World War, but I, I think it's more complex than that. And I, and I suppose, Matt, you know, you as an Australian, we'll, we'll see a parallel here with the story of Gallipoli in that for the US, you know, this was, they'd fall in the Italian campaign. And I think sometimes we do forget that Italy is part of Europe um, and that the first troops to land in Europe was at uh, uh, was at Salerno in, uh, in 1943, uh, including American troops from Mark Clark's Fifth Army. But I think from the, the American um, perspective, really, the real battle to defeat Nazi Germany began, could only begin in France. So to them, D-Day um, is an important, as important a date to them as as Anzac Day uh, is to uh, to Australia. I think that there's an element of cult, culture and identity here, which is why it's it's taken such an important um, position in in the whole D-Day story. I was talking recently um, over Anzac Day about Gallipoli, and and something that struck me actually as I was in the middle of all these interviews was that I think something that's important about it as well that relates to D-Day is an amphibious landing is something different. It's something different from you know, getting in a truck and driving to a particular area or even in the First World War being in a frontline trench and then assembling on tape and then going over the top. There's something about being on a boat and safe one minute and then under heavy fire on a beach the next minute that I think is just a defining moment. The people, there is a, I don't want to use the word romance, but there is a there is something about that that captures the imagination. And and we see that time and time again with amphibious landings, that that, that idea of hitting the beach in a boat is um is something that just sticks in people's minds. So I'm sure that uh, that plays a, a part in it as well from the American perspective. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, that whole idea of the ramp going down and, and running out and, you know, here we come to, to liberate France. I mean, my, my, my uncle Jack was in the Royal Navy and he was part of the combined operations flotilla that assisted the American landing on, on Omaha Beach. And when I was a kid, long before saving Private Ryan... He used to sit me on his knee and talk about D-Day and talk about this stick of Americans from the 29th Division who he'd had in his landing craft assault, taking them into Omaha. He'd uh, worked on the operations um, at Sicily and Salerno and at Anzio uh, and then took part in, in D-Day as well. And he said that they, these were the best men. He was the finest men that he'd ever had in his landing craft and he was in total awe of these men. And then the ramp went down, the machine guns began began to play. And there they were, only minutes before, telling him, you know, don't you worry, Limey, we've come here to kick in Hitler's front door, you'll be going home to your family soon. And within minutes, they were dead. And his landing craft took a direct hit from the 88 uh, that was in the bunker a bit further up the beach, and uh, he woke up a few days later in the uh, Royal Navy Hospital in Portsmouth. So, you know, I think there is that like you say, romance to that story. I mean, tragic romance in this case with the tremendous losses. And I think the, the Americans to a degree are, are obsessed about it. But I think where it gets interesting is that, you know, we can look at the, the figures for the British side in quite some detail. We can look at the war diaries that are in the National Archives in the UK. We can look at the British official history um, of the operations on Normandy. Uh, and we can look at those diaries on lots of different levels from battalion to brigade to division I mean, get a very, very clear and, and detailed picture of what the losses were. It's much more difficult with the Americans. You know, the American official history of this cross-channel attack doesn't really indicate what the level of casualties were on Omaha Beach. And there's been much debate. And, and I think, you know, bloody Omaha, people thought thousands and thousands had died there. And the men on the ground, looking around them, seeing bodies all over the place, 
understandably would have, would have thought the same. But recent research, you know, has, has put that figure rather than thousands, it's put it much nearer to a thousand dead on Omaha. And I think when you look at the scale of the American land in there that day, um, I think it puts it into perspective. It, it doesn't diminish the bravery of these guys. I mean, when you when you stand at the American cemetery and, and you look down on the beach from the German perspective, you think, you know, you've got to be some kind of guy to, to come ashore under those circumstances and fight your way up there. Um, but I think what it does, it, it shows that the D-Day story is not just about those catastrophic casualties on Omaha. Everyone suffered problems. Everyone suffered losses. Um, it was how they that how they got through that, how they achieved victory despite those losses. And, of course, D-Day was a victory in 1944. You mentioned your uncle, and I know your dad was also a veteran of the Second World War. How important over the years has it been, those conversations you've had with veterans? Because I'm, I'm very jealous, mate, of the number of veterans you've spoken to, both First and Second World War veterans over the years. How important has that been in shaping your understanding of these events, those conversations with veterans? Oh, massive, massively important. I mean, you know, oral history has its has its issues. People misremember things. But I think that, you know, over the years of doing it, and certainly with Ledger Battlefield tours, you know, for the last two and a half decades, I've seen a change in, in veterans in, in the way that they, they talk about things. Um, but a lot of these guys had kept this bottled up for years and years, and it came, you know, popping out in incredible detail. But I think that the the thing from the the British veterans that I've taken back to uh, the the D-Day beaches, who were there, you know, I think despite well, because of films like Private Ryan, it's made them feel that their contribution was was overlooked, and they're very keen to to try and sort of set the record straight and and describe just how difficult those those beaches were. Bert Barrett, who was uh, one of my York Normandy veterans, I used to take back on a regular basis. He was in the second East Yorks on Sword Beach and on the Eva D-Day he was absolutely gutted after so much training to discover that he was in the LOB, the left out of battle. This was the 10% of the battalion that was held back in case they got annihilated. And of course they did. Um, but he landed as, in a follow-up wave as reinforcements to, to reinforce what was left of the battalion and he came ashore and he stepped over the floating bodies of his comrades and men that he trained with and this had a massively lasting impression upon him um, and was something that he, he needed to tell that story to put across to people just how costly D-Day was for the British forces and the Commonwealth forces. Um, so I think that, you know, that was certainly one of the many lessons that I've, that I've learned from them. But I think with veterans, they add a dimension to your knowledge of conflicts that it's, it's not easy to get elsewhere. It's not impossible. I mean, there are some, as you know, the fabulous memoirs of both world wars, of many other conflicts beside, but it's just the little details of things that they've, you know, they've told me over the years. In Hermanville, just off of uh, Sword Beach, there's a well, and many vets I've taken back wanted to see this well, and, uh, and people said, well, why did they want to see that? Well, when we landed, fresh water, as with any landings, you know, it was really important. Um, and we thought that uh, we'd be able to make use of these really modern French water towers that existed in every village. But they'd been damaged um, during the pre-D-Day bombardment and were inoperable. So we had to use this well in Hermanville to supply the bulk of the water for British troops in the first month 
of the Normandy campaign. Um, and this little inconspicuous well in this village was as important to these veterans as the fields in which they'd, they'd fought. So you get little things like that, really. Mate, like me, I know that you love getting out and walking the ground, and it's it's one of the great joys of my life is to go and explore these battlefields. Again, I'm jealous that you are so close to the battlefields and get to go over there so often, but uh, Normandy is a very special area, isn't it, to get out and walk around. Just talk us through a little bit that experience of standing on those beaches and exploring those villages where all these great actions occurred. It is. I mean, it is a brilliant place to get out and walk, and, and like you say, to, to get a perspective of, of what it was like from both sides, from an infantry soldier's point of view, to, to walk the ground is, is really, really important. And when you walk up that beach, um, you know, you go to, you can look up the time, the tide tables rather, and uh, and see when there's a low tide, similar to what it would have been on D-Day. And you walk right out and you see just how far off the beach that they actually landed. And you walk up and you think about how long that's taken you without someone pointing an MG 34 or 42 or an 81 millimeter mortar at you. Um, you know, that's quite a sobering thing to do. And then when you get off the beaches and you begin to walk inland, Sword Beach come up through Hermanville up towards one of the series of inland defences like Hillman or Morris. And you get up there and you look back and you see the advantages the Germans had there because, you know, although there was no big bluffs on the British beaches, beyond each of our beaches were ridge lines. Sword, it was the Perrier Ridge. Um and they had an incredible field of fire up there. They had pre-prepared anti-tank positions, which they rolled up into with 88s and 75s. And walking that ground and getting a sense of it, you know, it's uh, there's nothing, nothing like it, really. Nothing like it. I, I should say to people that are listening, if you haven't had the opportunity to go to Normandy, then absolutely do it. It's, it's really quite extraordinary. And, and you and I are lucky, mate, that we, we both work in the battlefield touring industry and uh, we work together on, uh, on visiting Normandy. And so um, hopefully as soon as people are allowed to travel again, we can see people heading back to the Normandy beaches because it's just a, it's, it's one of the most special things I've, I've done on a battlefield. Paul, just finishing up, do we remember D-Day in the right way? The, the fact that the British get a little bit overlooked, the fact that the Canadians get almost completely overlooked. I mean, now that we're more than 75 years down the track, if you, if you had your way, how would people remember the British contribution to D-Day? I, I think it's, it's not just about remembering one country. I mean, I, I want people to be more aware of what the British and Commonwealth contribution uh, was. The Longest Day doesn't even mention the Canadians, the, the famous film, for example. So their pivotal role in those landings you know, needs to be as, as much as acknowledged as the British one. But I suppose it's really understanding and accepting that this was coalition warfare. The only way to beat the Third Reich was through a coalition war. Uh, and not just in the West, but in the East as well. You know, just after D-Day, Operation Bagration begins on the Eastern Front, which is the beginning of the end of the war for Nazi Germany there and their ultimate defeat in Berlin. So we've got to see it in, in its global picture, really, the overall picture of how this was possible. To defeat tyranny on that scale, you needed to have this coalition of different nations, and each one played their part, and no one's nation is greater or lesser important or the sacrifice is any greater or lesser than another each one contributes from the 177 french commandos through to the thousands of british and commonwealth and american servicemen on d-day everyone played their role um, and it was an important role it was a turning point in the 20th century and we will be obsessed with d-day with the 6th of june 1944 i would guess forever 
Very well said, Paul. It's always a great pleasure having you on the show and uh, we'll, we'll definitely have you back again. Uh, just thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us about D-Day and this anniversary week. It's been great. Thank you, mate. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.